broadcasting live from the RNR studios in Las Vegas, Nevada. It's the premier destination for an inside look into the Las Vegas Raiders. You're in the huddle with Vinny Bonsignor. Presented by Tequila Embajador. Radio 920 AM on a Monday. A little bit of technical issues there uh, to start the show. Uh, apologies uh, for that. Hope all is well. Hope everybody had a great weekend. We are moving into week three of phase three of OTAs. And guess what? There's a mini camp coming uh, next week to end it all. And then it's a few weeks off before training camp starts. Can you guys believe it? It's a little bit of a month, more than a month away before training camp starts for the 2021 season. Really, I know the Raiders were here in Las Vegas last year, and there's no doubt uh, about that. <clears throat> but I kind of feel like this is going to be the first official year for the Raiders in Las Vegas because fans now uh, are going to be involved, hopefully. Um, we see what's going on with the Golden Knights uh, these last during the playoffs, uh, the last two playoff games in particular. Uh, Derek Carr, who um, was present for Game 3 and uh, took part of that, uh, that pregame ceremony that the Golden Knights uh, always do, tweeted afterwards like, hey, man, if Allegiant Stadium is going to be a lot like what T-Mobile Arena is for Golden Knights games, watch out. And uh, and he's right. It's it's just bedlam uh, at T-Mobile. And I fully expect that to be the case come football season at Allegiant Stadium. Uh, we've talked about this so many times. By the way, you're in the huddle with Vinny Bonsignor, brought to you by Tequila Embajador. Um, and just want to let you guys know, uh, I mentioned this last week, um, but... Embajador Tequila is throwing a show every Friday night over at Michael T's uh, Steakhouse uh, here in Las Vegas. And um, it's a live show from uh, 9 p.m. to 3 a.m. There's Hawaiian music, karaoke, a bunch of drink specials, obviously, with Embajador Tequila. Michael T's uh, has been a great friend of the show, uh, obviously, as has Embajador Tequila. So if you get a chance, if you're in Las Vegas, whether you live here or you're visiting here, go check out Michael T's every Friday night. Uh, it's a, a Aloha Fridays is what they call it, um, and it's sponsored by Embajador Tequila. It's a lot of fun. It's a great spot, and it's great food. Uh, again, Michael T has been a great friend of this of this show, and uh, we're wishing him the best. As things start getting back on track and crowds are now allowed back in and full capacity are allowed back in, you know, our friends in the restaurant business, uh, so many businesses, uh, took a big hit. Uh, during the pandemic, and we're here to uh, to kind of help them uh, get back on track. As we're all in this together, you know, it takes a team to win, uh, obviously. And so, uh, Michael Tees, we're wishing him the best. As the show goes on, I'll have some other embajador um, tequila type um, mentions to let you guys know about. But for sure, uh, over at Michael Tees, every Friday night, 10 p.m. to uh, 3 a. Excuse me, 9 p.m. to 3 a.m. Aloha nights uh, at Michael Tees. But, you know, talking about how football season is almost upon us, but it's important for the Raiders, as is the case, you know, for, for everybody else, to finish this 
portion of the season strong and on a high note. And uh, the Raiders have been getting after it uh, over at the facility in Henderson. Uh, we mentioned how hot it was last week, yet attendance was was through the roof. Uh, it's been like that throughout uh, the offseason program. We talked about the vote that the uh, Players Union sort of willed upon a lot of these teams to kind of be lock and step with what the union wants to do. And I get the union has their prerogative and their agenda, but and most of the time it lines up with what the players uh, want as well themselves as a collective group. But sometimes it kind of works against truly what's best for the players as a whole. And we've talked about this quite a bit, how important this process is for team building. And we're talking about OTAs. We're talking about the offseason program, team building individuals that are still kind of trying to find their way. Uh, and when you talk about the Raiders, that's quite a bit of their roster. Let's be honest with that, right? Uh, this young roster that the Raiders have, there's a lot of promise here. And there's a lot of reasons to think that big step forwards are, are coming, but you can't skip some of the necessary steps along the way to get you where you want to get to. Um, and from everyone from Henry Ruggs to Brian Edwards to Tanner Muse to Damon Arnett, Clee Farrell, Max Crosby, Trayvon Mullen, Jonathan Abram, uh, Trayvon Morig, uh, Alex Leatherwood, Andre J. You want me to go on and on and on with all the young players that the Raiders are counting heavily on right now that are busy at work in the building in, in Henderson and what they missed last year at this time of year and what they're getting this time around now that everything is fairly back to normal. It's critical. It's critical. And if Raider nation, if you, if you want to be kind of selfish about it as you should be, it's, critical for this team in particular. The Raiders and, you know, Clee Farrell talked about this last week about how close the Raiders truly feel to being a playoff caliber team. We've talked about it so many times about those three games at Allegiant Stadium that unfortunately the defense couldn't get the job done in critical stages with a minute, less than two minutes left, less than a minute left, less than 20 seconds left in the game. Three times down the stretch that the defense couldn't close the deal on games that they should have won, which would have given the Raiders 11 wins last year instead of the eight that they finished up with. Where it just at that point, you know, the Raiders' defense just wasn't ready. They weren't there yet. They weren't, um, I don't want to say capable. But they just didn't quite have what it took to close out important games like that. And but, but we've also talked about even had they done that, even had they hung on to win those three games uh, by, by making a play or two down the stretch in those situations that we've talked about, it wouldn't have glossed over the fact that they needed major help defensively. And it's multi-layered. Some of it was talent adding some better players in some critical areas, the defensive line, which accounted for 14 and a half sacks last year that needed to get better. Even had they won those three games that we talk about, that wouldn't have glossed over the fact that major work was needed along the defensive line. It wouldn't have overcome the fact or changed the fact, I should say, <coughs> excuse me, that there was 
a new leader was needed defensively, that a new vision was needed defensively. Nothing against Paul Gunther. Uh, he seems like a fine, fine human being and a good football coach and happy for him that he's landed on his, his feet. But as the leader of that defense, it just wasn't working. And even had the Raiders hung on to win those games that we're talking about, it probably wouldn't have changed the overall picture, which was this defense needed new leadership in place. It wouldn't have changed the fact that the Raiders need to come up with more turnovers. It wouldn't have glossed over the fact that something needed to be done in order to improve that statistic. They needed to turn the, they need to get more turnovers uh, than what is it, the 15 that they had last year? It's just unacceptable. 14 and a half sacks from the defensive line and 21 sacks overall is unacceptable. And so, even had they closed those deals down the stretch in, in, in a couple of those games, even if they had gone to the playoffs as a result, I don't think the Raiders were ever going to lose sight of the fact that there's some flaws here. There's some some things that we can do. And by we, of course, I mean John Gruden and Mike Mayock and, and their thinking. There's some things that needed to be done to get this defense better. One other aspect of it all, though, too, which there was nothing anybody could do about it, was the fact that home fields are supposed to provide an advantage. There's a reason why, you know, when you look at betting lines, there's always going to be a compensation or an accounting for the fact that teams play at home. Whether it's they're going to be favored by more or underdogs by less, whatever the case might be, there's always going to be a home field advantage, typically speaking, 99% of the time, unless you're just talking about, you know, um, one of those winless Detroit Lions teams or, or whoever, even in those cases, you know, there's always going to be some sort of an accounting for the fact that that team is playing at home. They've got a rabid fan base that makes a lot of noise, that makes life difficult for the other teams, lifts the players, the home players up a little bit, you know, by providing uh, enthusiasm and passion and, you know, whether it's pushing somebody to dig a little bit further, you know, because there's 70,000 people, 65,000 people urging them on, it's going to have an effect. It always has historically. That wasn't available to the Raiders this year that's going to change. And so you start looking at all of the combinations between all of the various dynamics between bringing in Yannick Ngakwe, Max Crosby getting healthy, Clee Farrell getting better uh, in certain areas, i.e. pass rush. Don't know if that is going to happen, but I think Clee Farrell is focused on making that happen. Max Crosby also getting better in some areas too. Uh, improving the interior of the defensive line, bringing in a Quinton Jefferson, uh, bringing in a Solomon Thomas, who seems to be now kind of af after being, you know, quote unquote bust as a number one, three, number th uh, three pick overall a few years ago into now somebody that the Raiders are going to streamline uh, his responsibilities kind of define him in a certain role uh, as that uh, three gap uh, defensive end-ish type player and, and let him do what he's capable of doing. 
bringing in a Darius Phylon, who has missed the last couple of years due to a, a off-field uh, situation. But prior to that, this was a productive football player who generally got four, four and a half sacks per season. I know that doesn't sound like a lot, but sacks is you, you total them up. It's not just one guy. You're getting contributions from everybody. And, you know, if we've talked about this, if, if Darius can get the four sacks that he normally gets and Quentin Jefferson can get the three sacks that he normally gets uh, and, you know, Clee Farrell could get five to seven sacks and Max Crosby and Yannick Ngakwe do what they normally do, that eight to ten uh, sack total. All of a sudden, just from the defensive line and not even accounting for Carl Nassib, and there's no reason why he shouldn't be able to, once if he gets back on the field this year, if he works his way back into good graces and uh, and plays the way he's capable of, of, of playing, there's no reason that he can't get five sacks, six sacks. That's what he's done in his past. You know, and then you add in a, a Malcolm Kuntz who has kind of a natural feel uh, for, for pass rush. If he can get to four, five, six sacks, all of a sudden, again, you start looking at that defensive line as a whole. And it's very easy to imagine and project without putting anything like without without expecting somebody to rise above and beyond what they're capable of doing, like an, on an outlandish basis there's not even a need to do that to pretend like, you know, Max Cross or, or, or Clee Farrell is going to get 15 sacks this year. He doesn't need, I mean, it'd be great if he does, but if he just does his part five to six, seven sacks and everyone else does kind of what they're capable of doing, Max Crosby's already had years where he's gotten 10 and a half sacks as has uh, Yannick Ngakwe. So if you just give them eight to 10 each, which they're more than capable of doing, that's not outlandish. That's just what they've done. That's who they are. You start adding that up after a while and you start seeing the possibility easily, really, of more than 30 sacks over a 17-game stretch from the defensive line. And you start talking about, you know, I've seen with my own two eyes Corey Littleton be a factor in the rush game. He's not a great pass rusher, but if you unleash him at the right time, he's going to get, you know, he can get three sacks. Nicholas Morrow had a couple of sacks, three sacks last year. Historically, in Gus Bradley's defenses, whether it's a safety or a cornerback or a combination of both, you're going to probably get five sacks from your from your secondary somehow, some way, if not more. All right, so now you're talking about three, six, another five from the defensive backs. It's 11 plus the 30 or so that that you should be able to get from your defensive line. Now you're talking about in the 40s. They had 21 sacks as a whole last year, this entire defense. If the Raiders can double that up, and again, I have to stress this, Nobody's sitting here and saying that anything you're, 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 you're projecting anybody to do anything just crazy or impossible, or how could you even think along those lines? It's not that at all. It's literally just guys who have done these type of things in the past doing it again. There's no reason why they shouldn't be able to. None. Zero. Zilch. Anything that you say of why it couldn't happen is just an excuse at this point. Like it would take a major breakdown 
for this group of defensive linemen to come up with 30 or so sacks this year. It's just, it just is. And so you add in the sacks that you should be able to get from a Jonathan Abram and, you know, one of the cornerbacks, a couple of the linebackers, you know, you can probably get, you should be able to get to about 11 or so. I mean, they, the, the Raiders had 14 and a half sacks last year just from their, I mean, from their defensive line, which is, you have to scratch your head just even saying that. It's like, that's bad. <laughs> but they also, they finished with 21, what, 21 and a half or so, 21 sacks. So that means you got seven and a half sacks from other players outside of the defensive line. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> I would think that that can increase by a couple at least, maybe three. The way you know Gus Bradley calls the defense, the way things typically happen under a Gus Bradley defense. So 40 or so sacks doubling up on what they had last year is going to make a profound difference. Does it make them one of the great pass rushing teams in the NFL? No. There's pass rushing teams that are just better, that have you know more, more talent in that regard. But when you're talking about doubling something up from one year to the next, you can't sit there and tell me that that's not going to have or shouldn't have a huge effect on your defensive operation. Because all of a sudden, not only are you talking about getting to the quarterback more often, you're probably talking about forcing more turnovers, whether it's a strip sack or just getting into the quarterback's face more often on a quarterback hit or quarterback pressure. What does that usually lead to? That's right. Guys throwing off balance. Guys throwing on, throwing the ball in uncomfortable situations. Guys rushing their passes. Guys overthrowing it. Guys throwing it short because they're not. Their feet aren't under them. They're not following through. They're throwing off their back foot. They're not getting the kind of uh, oomph that they're looking to get. They're not being able to throw it as accurately because somebody's in their face. You know, I remember when I covered the Rams and they would go play Drew Brees and they actually had some success against Drew Brees. And if you talked to the defensive linemen, and I can't use some of the language that they used, but getting Drew Brees to the ground was pretty hard. He just had a way of being able to get rid of the ball so quick in a lot of different situations. But what guys like Aaron Donald and Michael Brockers and what they ultimately focused on was, look, I'm not going to sit here and get frustrated because I can't get that dude to the ground because he's throwing the ball so gosh darn quickly. He's just got a knack for doing that. I'm not going to get down on that. I'm going to do the next best thing. I'm going to try to force him out of his comfort zones. And together, if we continue to do that on a consistent basis, he's going to make a mistake. Or he's just not, he's, and it doesn't even have to be uh, a, a, a turnover necessarily. It's not throwing the ball accurately. It's not hooking up. It's throwing, you know, uh, completing fewer, fewer passes as a result. And even against a team like that, against a guy like Drew Brees, you'll take that. It's frustrating. Trust me, those guys hated having to play him and hated understanding there's probably a chance that we're not going to get him to the ground because he's just a magician at getting the ball loose uh, out of there. But, you can still affect him and affect the way he throws the ball. And I think for the Raiders, it doesn't always have to be sacks, although I think it's critical, obviously. It goes without saying. they got to get more than 14 and a half sacks from their defensive line, and they have to get more than 21 sacks entirely from their team. I think there's the capability of doing that. But along with that is the importance of just 
really getting after the quarterback on a more consistent basis to force things like turnovers or incomplete passes on a third down and getting the other team off the field, which is something the Raiders didn't do very well last year as well. So getting that pressure up front, which is what Gus Bradley's defenses are predicated on, helps in so many different areas. We'll talk about it a little more when we get back here in the huddle with Rudy Monsignor. In the huddle, brought to you by Tequila and Bahner. Yeah. Interact with the show. Text Vinny at 69187 or tweet at him at Vinny Bonsignor. This is In the Huddle with Raiders beat writer Vinny Bonsignor on Raider Nation Radio 920 AM. First off, the biggest thing is the man. Um, Coach Bradley is a guy who's going to talk to you about your vision for your life. When you sit down and meet with him, he's going to talk to you about um, trust, respect. Because um, in this league, we know a lot of things dealing with business can kind of take out the aspect of loyalty, being a good person. Um, so I think the biggest thing with Coach Brad, I love, first of all, he's a good dude. You know what I mean? And I think that that makes you want to play for a guy, you know, even more. That's Clee Farrell uh, talking about New Raiders defensive coordinator uh, Gus Bradley. And by the way, you're in the huddle with any Bonsignor brought to you by Tequila Embajador on a Monday. Welcome back. Hope you guys had a great weekend. Uh, Clee wasn't the only one uh, of the defensive players that we talked to or that we've talked to uh, so far during the OTAs who kind of said a similar thing about Gus Bradley in terms of sitting you down and talking to you and developing a line of communication and talking to you about more uh, than just football. Um, Trayvon Mullen mentioned it. Um, Max Crosby talked about it as well. And, you know, I always say this, uh, you, you know, when you look back at last year's Raiders defense, we've talked about this so many times. And again, I'm not here to point fingers um, or anything. I'm just making observations. That's what we do. But I always felt like too many times, I should say, uh, the Raiders defense, just there was a disconnect going on. There just wasn't a lot of chemistry. It just seemed like not everybody was on the same page. Maybe there was a little bit of a trust factor. Um, not sure what the other guy was doing. And it's just hard to play defense that way. Go watch the NBA. Go watch when there's a defensive breakdown, how masterfully and quickly and painfully NBA players make NBA defenders pay for their mistakes and exploit those mistakes. It's just that's what you do at that level. It's the highest level. If you give a team, if you give a great team uh, any sort of an advantage in that regard, they're going to make you pay for it. And how many times do we see uh, the Raiders defense pay for that? (laughs) I don't want to use the word dysfunction. It was just just a disconnect. And you saw it in some of the most critical points of the game when you absolutely – 1,000% 1,000% need to be airtight more at more than any other point in the game. Third downs, third and longs. You know, the Raiders actually did a pretty good job from time to time uh, on putting teams in third down situations, playing well the first and second down to force a third and 13 or a third and 11 or a third and long. Yet, when you look at what they did getting teams off the field on third downs, it 
wasn't good. They were among the worst teams in the NFL at that very thing. And so many of those times wasn't just letting a team convert on third and four or third and short. Man, there were like third and 16s, third and 12 in key parts of the game. Those are back breakers, back breakers, game changers. They alter the outcome of games. And it just always seemed at the most critical moments, that was when the whatever it is that I'm trying to capture here or classify or phrase the disconnection, the dysfunction, whatever you want to call it, that's when it reared its ugly head the most. And after a while, and we've talked about this, there's a lot of reasons for that. There wasn't a foundation set during the offseason. There were a whole bunch of new faces, seven new starters, some rookies and second-year players um, that hadn't played a whole lot the year before, some just complete newcomers, Corey Littleton, Nick Kwiatkowski, guys like that, Carl Nassib, uh, Maurice Collins, um, you know, guys that just showed up <laughs> at training camp, literally. Yeah, Zoom meetings during the offseason, big deal. A bunch of these guys just showed up and met each other for the first time in training camp. All right, so there's that factor that was involved. There were injuries that were involved. COVID-19 was involved. Everything was discombobulated because of COVID-19. Practice schedules, meeting schedules, how many people were allowed in a room, having to do things on Zoom as opposed to, you know, sitting next to the guy and talking. Any, all, all of that played into it. We're, there, we're, we're not discounting any of that. You can't. I don't care how much you want to call it an excuse, it played a role. But beyond that, and that's why, you know, having said that, I can't put it all at Paul Gunther's doorstep. That's just not fair. And I won't do that. But there was a part of it that I do believe that Paul Gunther and his coaching staff played a role in. And that's why it was important that the Raiders make that change. Something just wasn't clicking. Something just wasn't getting through. Something just wasn't being taught. Something wasn't the messaging uh, either was too complicated or not seeping in, or maybe there was a lack of confidence from the players in what the message was and the responsibilities were and all of those things. All of those things contribute to outcomes, contribute to production, contribute to how you play, contribute to how you function, contribute to the confidence that you have. If you don't have, if you, okay, if you don't have a clear understanding of what it is that you're supposed to do, that's going to affect your play. If you don't have, if there's skepticism in what you're being asked to do, that's going to play into it. If there isn't a lack of command, if there isn't a lot, a, a, a unit wide command of what it is that you're supposed to be doing, that's going to play into it. And to me, a big part of that was coaching and teaching. What are What is a coach? A coach is a teacher, first and foremost, a teacher. And if you're not teaching the concept correctly, if it's not getting through to the players and or whatever it is that you're trying to to teach is falling on skeptical ears, all of that's going to play into it on Sunday afternoon. It just is. That's how that works. So if you're a Raider fan, 
don't just gloss over some of the things that you're hearing in terms of what players are saying about Gus Bradley. Hey, man, he sits you down. He talks about things more than just football. He's a good dude. He's somebody that you can relate to. You know what all of that ultimately does? And I, I'm, I'm just going to make a wild guess that I think that there's a feeling like that, not just about Gus Bradley, but also of Ron Milas, the new defensive back coach, Richard Smith, the new linebacker coach. It's already there for Rod Marinelli, the defensive line coach. To me, this is just my own observation, but I think Rod Marinelli was coaching with one hand tied behind his back last year because as the good soldier that he is, as the veteran coach that he is who understands the power and who has it and following orders and who to listen to and who to adhere to, adhere to, even if you might not be in full agreement on what's going on, you defer to the leader. And Rod Marinelli, being the old soldier that he is, I'm sure, deferred to Paul Gunther in what he was trying to do. And so... I can't sit here and say for sure that was that was in conflict with what Rod Marinelli did, but I kind of have a feeling that it was. But Rod Marinelli, when it ultimately got right down to it, was going to do what his boss told him to do, and his boss was Paul Gunther. That's how that works, right or wrong. Well, his boss has changed. His boss is now Gus Bradley, and... Gus Bradley and Rod Marinelli, while they haven't officially worked together, they have been longtime friends and confidants. There's a chemistry there. There's a relationship there. Um, and I think that that hand that I think was handcuffed last year with Rod Marinelli has been freed up. And I think you're going to see him being on the same page with Paul Gunther and vice versa. And I think that's going to seep through to the messaging and the teaching and the communication to the players. But I go back to what we're hearing consistently now about Gus Bradley, and that is, hey, you can sit down and talk to him, man. And, he, and it's not just about the X's and O's. It's about getting you to understand the X's and O's. It's about getting you to believe in the X's and O's. It's about getting you to believe and have confidence in what coach is asking me to do. When you That's called buy-in, by the way. <laughs> It's called buy-in. And when you have buy-in, when you can get your players to buy-in, that's half the battle right there. That is half the battle right there. And don't for a second think that that's always the case because it's not. There are players that do things reluctantly because they're being told to and they may not necessarily fully agree with it or fully believe in it. And guess what? It's going to show up on Sundays. I'm going to take make a wild prediction that I don't think that's going to be the case this year. I think there's going to be full buy-in. And I respect Gus Bradley for going about it in this way. You can't just come in here. Well, I should say the good coaches don't do this. They don't just come in here beating it, you know, the information over the head of a player. You, you, you develop a relationship. You develop a trust level. And I know there's not a lot of time to do this, but you have to maximize that time. You have to um, 
create an environment, an encouraging environment and a trustworthy environment that's going to lead to confidence in what's being taught. You also have to be able to teach what it is that you're trying to teach at a very high level. We've talked about this before, how players, and this has been from the beginning of time, people in general, human beings, don't always learn exactly the same. There's different ways that people absorb information. I'm not smart enough to tell you <laughs> what those term, the terminology is for each various type of teaching um, and each various type of digesting of that information. Um, but it's, 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 it's clinically proven, I guess, or scientifically proven or whatever it is, but it's proven that some people see things visually and learn visually. Some people are more verbally inclined to digest the information. Some people need to see it drawn up on a chalkboard. Some people need to go out on the field for it to be shown step by step. And you, the teacher have to understand that. Now, in Paul Gunther's defense, a lot of that was discombobulated last year. A lot of, the, you know, some of the ways that you can teach were completely taken away from coaches. Because, you know, especially during, there were no OTAs, so it was just on Zoom meetings. So what are, the, what are, what are guys doing? They're just learning it from a teacher sometimes thousands of miles away showing them something I'm sure on a chalkboard and maybe, you know, video and, and, you know, go, go watch it yourself. I don't know how it all went, but it's, there was a, 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 an important element that was taken away. And that was the element of, okay, everybody got it. Yeah. Kind of. Yes, for sure. And what was the next step going on to the football field to, to, to reinforce it? To, to to truly establish it for some guys. Some guys weren't getting it on, you know, uh, what was being told on Zoom. I'm not, I'm, I'm a learner, that, a, a, a guy that learns in a different way too. I have to see it. I have to walk through it. You know, I'm horrible in math. So I need to like, it needs to be visually shown me. You can't just get up there on a chalkboard and teach me how to do math. I'm, I'm going to suck at it. I'm going to just be straight up with you right now. I need somebody to sit down with me and write it out. I may need to look at a video <laughs> to see it. Otherwise, I'm not going to get it, period, exclamation point. And it used to make me feel bad about myself, like I was dumb or something like that. But then I realized I'm just, I don't, there's, I, I can't learn it that way. I have a hard enough time kind of learning it anyway, but there's other, there's better ways for me to digest it. Why am I different than anybody else? I'm not. I just, just that's not how I learned. That's, and that might not be how player B or player Z learns. Maybe he needs it a different way. Understanding that and being able to teach it in all those various forms and having the patience and understanding that sometimes that's how it's got to be or it always is going to be makes you a better coach and a better teacher. I feel bad for Paul Gunther that whatever he was trying to teach last year, an important element was taken out of that Um uh, implementation, but I think that Gus Bradley, in all phases, has an edge to uh, uh, about him and a benefit about him. He's a good dude that's going to create relationships, create that trust level, get that buy-in, teach it better along with his staff, and results should come as a result. You're in the huddle with Vinny Bonson. You're brought to you by Tequila and Bahadur.
We're back in the huddle with Vinny Bonsignor. This is Raider Nation Radio 920 AM. What's good, Raider Nation? Welcome back to Raider Nation Radio, 920 AM on a Monday. Hope everybody had a great weekend. We're talking about uh, Gus Bradley and some of what we're hearing from his new players about him. And one of the things to me that stands out is the relationship building. Um, you know, obviously, we're, we're, we're many, many moons away and years away and decades away um, from the old type of coaching where just do it because I told you to do it. <laughs> you know, that may have worked at some point down the line. I don't know. I, to be honest with you, I'm not sure that ever worked anyway, especially at the highest levels. Um, but it probably was a little bit more prevalent than it is now. You know, people are just a little bit more savvy now. Um, I don't think there's that while there's always respect, there should be respect, you know, for authority and, you know, who the boss is and all of that type of thing. Um, anywhere you work, there's going to be a power structure and you just have to respect that. Uh, but even the best companies that have, you know, a power structure where there's everything from, you know, the CEO down to the mail clerk, the best companies at the very highest points of leadership are still going to understand now the importance of communication, the importance of buy-in, the importance of engagement, the importance of allowing employees to to have a say uh, in in, in the matter. They don't have to have final say. Obviously, there's somebody that's going to have final say, and as it should be. But the final say can also be a bit of a process, right? Um, you don't just have this authority fi- figure uh, who's ultimately going to say, this is my decision and I'm, I don't care what anybody has to say. That's not the way to go about it. And even on a football team, you, you, you're in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a time, in a world where you have to allow people to have a voice. And what that voice ultimately gives somebody what you're ultimately giving that person, I should say, by giving them them that voice is ownership of what's going on. You know, Sean McVay, the Rams coach, when I was covering the Rams, used to talk about that a lot. And so did his position coaches. um, Because I, I, I remember, you know, distinctly when, when they got there, how much different it was from the previous staff in which, talking and communicating and uh, allowing players to have a voice was or just seemed to be much, much more prevalent under Sean McVay's staff than it did under the previous staff. And I distinctly remember talking to some of these coaches, why, why are you, what's important about that? And there were a bunch of reasons for it. Number one, it's there. When they get on the field, it's theirs, and they should own that. Yes, we're here to teach them. Yes, we're here to instruct them. Yes, we're here to put them in the best possible position. But ultimately, they have final say in terms of 
the execution and how it ultimately ultimately plays out. And so they should have a voice in that. If there's something that they disagree with, if there's something that they feel like, hey, you're kind of putting me in a position that's not really uh, accentuating what I do. In fact, it's kind of putting me in an unfavorable position. I just don't feel good about what we're trying to do here. A good coach isn't going to take that as a put down. A good coach is going to say, okay, well, what does make you feel a little bit better? Because ultimately, that player feeling good about what they're being asked to do is going to contribute greatly to the success or failure of what they ultimately do, right? It's just common sense. So giving somebody ownership in the process, a, a, a role in the process, which which provides ownership, part ownership, I should say, of the process, just empowers people. You're just, you feel more a part of it, more invested in it. Rather than just somebody that's carrying out some orders because somebody is barking in your ear to do it this way. Now, there, there, there is that too. You know, there's, there's all kinds of mind games that happen in life in general where you know you got to pat this guy on, on, on his you know what. You got to get in that guy's face because people respond differently too. Some people respond to an arm around their shoulder and encouragement. Some people are like, coach me up hard. I've had players tell me that. Hey, man, I don't want to hear all the glossy stuff. That doesn't work for me. I need you to get up in my face and tell me what the heck I'm doing wrong. Get me motivated. I mean, literally, there's guys like that too. There's some guys that you bark a little too loud and they're just going to crumble right in front of you. That doesn't make them a bad person and it doesn't make them somebody that you can't work with. That's You just can't be that way to that person. Think about yourself. What do you react to better? Some people react better when they get challenged, when they get, when somebody gets up in their face. And and you know uh, you know tells them they can't do it, or you know scolds them or screams at them or whatever, and that gets them revved up. Some people react negatively to that. But circling it back to Gus Bradley, and you know, kind of what the the the, the differences that I saw from. Um, the Rams staff that got to Los Angeles in 2016 and what Sean McVay and his group were doing, how differently it was and how much more communication there was and how players were openly talking about, man, they're letting me have a voice in this. Like they literally would say that. With Gus Bradley, and I'm kind of getting the sense that that's the same way. You, you know, when you when you sit down and talk to somebody, human being to human being, you're getting to know that person. You're getting to know what makes them tick. What is it? How are they responding to what I'm saying? How are they getting it? Are they the kind of guy that needs to get, you know, I'm going to have to bark in their ear. We're going to have to take it up a notch. We're going to have to take it up a notch with this guy. And he kind of responds to that. He likes that a little bit. And maybe for this player, it's like, it's like pull him aside kind of reason with him, kind of, you know, put an arm around his shoulder. Like he, he's, he's going to run through a wall for you. If he knows that you got his back right there. If you, if you get up, if you, if you turn up the volume too much, he might just kind of pull back a little bit. We don't want that. We need him running through that wall. <laughs> we don't need him shying away from it or now doubting himself because I pushed a little too hard. 
and sitting down with these guys. And it's really encouraging hearing some of these players talk about that element with Gus Bradley beyond just the X's and O's. What do you think Gus Bradley is learning in these conversations about who he's working with, especially now in OTAs? ahead of the heavy, heavy, heavy lifting that's about ready to happen in late January. He's learning who these guys are and how to approach them and how to talk to them and what makes them tick. And I'm sure he's having those very conversations with those guys. So there's a little bit of, there's there's shrewdness in this. And not to mention that good people are just good people. It sounds like Gus Bradley is a really good dude and that's coming across as well too. So he's not doing it just because that's the smart thing to do. He's doing that because that's how he's wired. And now it's going to benefit him in many, many other ways, building those relationships. You're in the huddle with Vinny Bonsignor, brought to you by Tequila and Bahra.